Thanks again, Jeff, for going beyond the call of duty while Ben's out of town. I really, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Uh, we are going to be continuing our study in 1 John. We're going to be looking at the last couple of verses of chapter 1, getting into the first two verses of chapter 2 in the text that Justin Sanders read a minute ago. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Again, just, uh, uh, let me ask, everybody has an outline? Raise your hand if you need one. Look at that, perfection. Oh, oh, Norris let us down. <laughs> we need a, can we get a, an outline to Norris, please? Wayne? We got one. Okay, we're great. Hey, now we're perfect. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again, right? Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we are, we, we're just excited about studying your word and, and the way that it impacts us and revolutionizes our, our thinking, the way that we deal with life and helping us not just to keep our head above water, but, but to excel and to, and to flourish in this life in, in such a way that there is this complete joy within us. And it's all because you allow us to have fellowship with you. It's a marvelous thing, Father. And we really confess that we don't know the half of it. But the fact that we can have an exchange with you, that there's a personal interchange with you on a daily basis, that it's, it's beyond knowledge, just warms our hearts, Father, and, and, and enlivens our spirit in such a way that we, we hunger and thirst for your presence more and more. And so bless us as we study tonight, Father, this phenomenal text, ancient, sacred text. And we pray, as we always pray, Father, for the blessing of eyes that see and ears that hear. Because it means that much to us, Father, as we find our, our true good in this life in being near to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all the church said, Amen. What John uh, tells us, in this general letter is that the gospel only works for people who realize that they can't walk into the presence of God alone. That they need someone to, to mediate, somebody to advocate for them. And this is the only way to have fellowship with the Father that leads to that complete joy that John writes about in verse 4 of the first chapter. Now having talked about that in the last few messages, the usual... And, and, you know, you don't have to um, uh, go very far before you realize these are the kinds of reactions. But, you know, having talked about that, there are a couple of reactions to that synopsis of the gospel. And, and ba basically people fall into two different camps. The first camp has a lot of trouble with that because, number one, they don't feel like moral failures. They just don't. They don't feel especially wicked and they don't understand why they just can't go into God's presence. They don't understand or perceive themselves to be sinners. And the second camp is filled with those people that are crushed by that truth. They have an overwhelming sense of their own personal wickedness. They have an overwhelming sense of the fact that they are not worthy, that it's impossible for them just to walk into to God's presence. And because that's true, they find it hard to look at God. Because that's true, they don't want to look at God. And, and to all of that, let, let me give a couple of responses. The, the first is this. And to those that are in that first camp, 
who do not see themselves as, as dirty, rotten scoundrels and who don't like that old-time religion because of its negativity and insistence on personal wickedness, let me say this. Beware. Beware. Beware of what? Well, beware of the fact that you will not want to admit it. You won't. That's what he's talking about. That's that deception that John's talking about in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we what, church? We deceive ourselves. Let's say it together. We deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. You will want to hide it from yourself. You will want to hide it from yourself and you will want to hide from yourself how self-centered you are and how much evil is really in there. You will repress it. You will deny it. I mean, think about it from this angle. I mean, how many times have we read of a shocking crime, some, some brutal thing that just it seems incomprehensible, the kind of thing that you pray stays far away from your own town, from your own neighborhood, and, and you hear the neighbors and all those people that lived around the person that, that perpetrated that crime, they say, you know, we're, we're so surprised. We're absolutely surprised he was such a nice man. Or they say, you know, he was, he was a nice young man, quiet, kept to himself, seemed to, be, uh, seemed to be polite. Or they would say, I used to sit next to her in church. Or she came from a good family. And, and what they really mean when they say things like this is that they can't believe that this person would do such a thing like they've done because that person is just like me. And I don't believe that I'm capable of such a thing. And that's why that kind of news is so shattering, so, so amazing at one level and so disappointing. And its roots are in terrible theology. Now we might say these kinds of things even as Christians. And if so, it means that we've not been reading our Bible in general and not reading 1 John in, in, in particular. The fact of the matter is that we are, we are capable of this. But we, we always fall back into that first camp believing that we are not wicked, that it's, it's not us, we're not moral failures, that we are good. And that always reinforces something that I, I, I read one time that, that John Newton, the old slave trader that was converted and became a great hymn writer and a, and a preacher in England a couple of centuries ago, he said, no one ever thought that they were a sinner because they were told. They had to be shown it. Here's another way to think about it. Consider an acorn. There is an, you know, when you look at that acorn, there is an enormous tree inside of that tiny little seed. There is a lot of wood inside of that acorn. It's all in there. And, and on that tree that is on the inside of that acorn, there are thousands of little acorns. And you get the picture, but, but the point is this. One little acorn has the power to cover the entire world with wood. Now that's a powerful seed. And the key is where does this acorn land? If the acorn lands on the pavement, pavement it, its power comes to nothing. But if it lands in fertile soil... So think about how a murder might take place. Or, or a theft. Let's, let's use a murder. It begins with a little tiny thought. Why did that person do that to me? And then it grows a little bit. 
you fool. And then it grows a little bit more. I really hate that person. And that little thought grows and grows until it becomes something like an action, like avoidance or gossip or slander. Just like what happens to that little acorn hitting the rich soil. And given time and given the right kinds of circumstances, that little thought can grow into a murder. And this is why Jesus says it's not enough. It is not enough to literally not murder someone, but you can't hate them in your heart either. Because that's where it begins. We have inside of us the seeds of our own destruction. And just because you don't see it doesn't mean that it's not in there. And it is a grace of God that that acorn falls on something other than the soil because we are capable of things that are incomprehensible to us. Now our response to the second camp who are crushed by the knowledge of their moral failings. You know, John is aware of the fact that there is this little voice inside of a lot of people that daily nails them to the wall. And here's kind of the scenario. They, they do a great sin. They commit a great wrong. There's a moral failure that they see without a shadow of a doubt that they have, that they have uh, actioned in, in, in the world. And there's this little voice that asks, I mean, how in the world could you do that? What were you thinking? And they begin to feel a little bit of the guilt. And then that voice kind of sticks that dagger in slowly and says, you know, you did something that was pretty bad there. What makes you think that God would ever want to have anything to do with you? And then that person begins to think about that. Why would a God, like the one that I read in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, who is holy and loving and has done so much, created everything, and has done so much to love me and to bless me, why in the world would he have anything to do with a person like me? And they begin to give up on the faith. Now they still might go to church in some scenarios but it comes really hard for them to believe. And they don't have that complete joy that John writes about. And for most of their life, they're kind of bogged down in the shallows. Or if they go a different way, they give up altogether on the faith. They think Christianity is nothing more than a guilt trip. And they don't need that. Now, because of those two responses to what John is saying, I, I think that the rest of John's message is incredibly important. John says that you cannot go in on your own. You have to have that mediator. It goes all the way back to, to God relating to the people in Leviticus. There had to be that, that priest. There always had to be that mediator, that, that advocate. John says you can't go in. That's true. It's impossible. But, my dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. What He's saying there is that we have an advocate. In the original language, it's that word parakletos. Now when you find that, that, that word uh, paraclete, as, as a verb, it means uh, really great things like in, encouraging, to, to comfort, to, to exhort, to, to, to build up. 
But when you find it in the noun form, as we find it here in 1 John chapter 2, it means someone who comes up alongside of us, like a lawyer, like an advocate. And what John is saying is that that's exactly what Jesus is. He is that parakletos, that advocate who speaks to the Father in our defense. Which brings up kind of an interesting question because we always think of Jesus as, as, as our Savior, as the Messiah, the Son of God. He is the author, the perfecter of our faith. He is all these different things. But here he's an advocate. Now what in the world is an advocate? Well, simply put, an advocate is, is one who has a relationship with you to the extent that whatever they achieve, you achieve also. Now that's wonderful. They are this legal representative for you. You know, in the ancient times, go back to the Old Testament, for instance. In ancient times, you would have this champion. In, in the Greek language, it was the uh, archagos. And that, that champion, that, um, uh, that, that champion would go out and he would fight for you. And, and what it did is it kept a lot of people from being killed. And you find that at the heart of the David-Goliath story over in 1 Samuel. You have the two champions, Goliath with the Philistines, David with the Jews coming out, and they represent, they represent Philistia, they represent Is, Israel, and whatever Goliath achieves or does not achieve, that affects Philistia. And whatever David is able to, to achieve or not achieve, that affects Israel. And the, the champion brings to the rest of the army what he conquers, what he achieves. Now John says that Christ himself is our advocate. He is the one that is speaking for us. He is, in other words, making this case, representing us, winning the case in a way that we cannot. Now, as an aside, it's kind of interesting to think of the, the parakletos work of both the Holy Spirit and of Christ. The Holy Spirit, as, a, as part of the work of the Holy Spirit as a paraclete, is to plead God's case in convicting men of sin. Which is what Jesus said, right? The Holy Spirit will come and He will convict the world of sin and of judgment and of righteousness. But on the other hand, Christ, as that paraclete, pleads man's case before God, bringing forgiveness of sin. Now, our minds, you know, enlarge all of a sudden at the idea of Jesus as, as an advocate. Let me tell you what this does not mean. It does not mean that Jesus says, Father, do not wipe out Mark Absher for my sake. I'd really like for you to spare him. And God says, okay. But you guys know me well enough to know that what am I going to do probably about ten minutes later? What am I going to do? Sin, right? I sin again. And God is ready to punish Mark, and rightfully so. But Christ jumps in at the last minute and says, please, please, please don't do it. Give him another chance. He sincerely promises to never do it again. Right, Mark? I promise. And God relents, okay, maybe one more time. But Mark does it again. Now, if I think about Jesus as my advocate, speaking in my defense to the Father, the righteous one doing that, you know what that is to me? Nerve-wracking. It's nerve-wracking. Why? It's because you begin wondering when God is going to say, listen, enough is enough. I've had it up to here with all of these chances. He's had a million chances. No more chances. It's time for him to pay the fiddler. Now that scenario is not what John is writing about. 
And it's really important for us to see here in 1 John chapter 2 that Jesus is not referred to as, as, as the merciful one or the persuasive one. He is referred to as the righteous one. Now you know as well as I do that a good lawyer does not appeal to emotion unless he doesn't have a case. Now what John is telling us is that Jesus has a case. He is not begging God for mercy. He is making the case as that righteous one. And as that righteous one, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of what? Righteousness was what? Which is a legal term. You're justified in that courtroom because of the righteousness that brings life for all men. Verse 19, For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made what? Righteous. And then we drop down to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. All this is from God who is reconciling us to Himself through Christ and gave us even the ministry of reconciliation. That God is reconciling the world to Himself in Christ not counting men's sins against them. We're reconciled to God not because of mere mercy. You know, that I have to forgive them because it's my duty. We're reconciled to God through the righteous one based on justice. So Paul says in Romans 3, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So, so why is that important to realize that Jesus is making a case? That, that Jesus is not just begging for mercy, but He's making a case that when God sees us, He sees the righteousness of Christ, that we are in Christ, Christ is in us, that He accepts us based on what the law stipulates. Why is that important? Let me give you two reasons and then we'll be done. The first is this, you can finally deal with the guilt. The reason we deal with guilt all the time is because of that little voice. That little voice. And because Jesus is our advocate, because He's making a case, He's making an argument. Yes, Mark is a sinner. Yes, Mark is guilty of everything plus the things that the, the accuser has not accused him of. But He is righteous because I am righteous. And that's the end of the voice. God's not just giving you mercy, He's giving you justice. To, to be sure, mercy is there because it's mercy that triggered the reality of the cross, got it rolling, made it happen. It's because God is merciful that His Son died on the cross. But it's more than just that, that mercy. And it means more than just, just forgiveness in the sense of, well, you know, we no longer have this thing between God and myself. What it means is that God is treating you like a son or a daughter. After writing all of those things about it, what, it, what it means to be in Christ, after realizing after the first three chapters of Romans that there is no one who can come to God, there's no one who can approach Him, there's no one that seeks God, no one that is righteous, and that the way that you get to God is through that righteous one, having faith in that righteous one, Christ, participating in that death, burial, and resurrection in Romans chapter 6, and as Christ died to sin, <clears throat> we die to the legal claims of sin so that we are raised up, ready to give ourselves as, as slaves to righteousness. 
Because all of that is true, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no what? Now why in the world are you feeling guilty? There's no condemnation. I mean, certainly you feel bad when you sin against the holiness of God. And you should, and we'll be talking about this in the coming, coming text, about the importance of living a life that, is, that manifests a, a sense of worthiness for that kind of love. But in knowing that when God sees you, He sees beauty. Because He sees His Son. That there's no condemnation. Why do you feel guilty? Who can bring a charge against the elect? He says, there's no condemnation. 33 verses later, he says, who is going to bring a charge against the elect? No one. Why? Because it's God who who justifies. And then number two, you can deal with the disappointment. Disappointment's a terrible thing. It it, it leads to despondency, and, and you know, after... You know, a lot of years of, of working with people, you know, most of the despondency that I come into contact with, it, it, it comes from a loss of hope. Something really important, something you were banking on doesn't, doesn't come about. It might be a dream that, that doesn't come true. It might be something that's valuable, that's lost. And, and, and the reason that these things bring that despondency is because what we desire of them is only what Christ can be for us. These things that when lost bring despondency are in reality the case that you're trying to make to God to accept you. Now it may not be that sophisticated in terms of the way that we think about it. But deep down it's the things that we think that are giving us the value, that are, that are giving us the, 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 the hope for things good in the future. It's the things that, that make us in our own mind significant. And when we lose those things, we are despondent. And the reason we are despondent is we've, we've lost those things that really could never give us what we were wanted, but we're substituting them for what we can only find in Christ. You know, I've told you about that quote out of the book Dynamics of a Spiritual Life by Richard Lovelace. He quotes P.T. Forsyth about the middle of the book, and he says, he says, he says you know what? We, we know inside of our head that we're children of God. It's, 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 it's a fact that we take to the bank. But there's lots of evidence against it. And until we're able to surmount that and warm our hearts at the, the, the truth of God's love and salvation for us, we will steal that love in other places. And so despondency sets in because the love that we stole from another place has let us down. We banked on it. It didn't come true. It was valuable, and we lost it. It was a dream. It didn't come true. And therefore, we have, you know, we're, we're, we're bankrupt. They all fall short. They all, they all fall through. And when that happens, there's kind of this personal recession that sets in. And you know, to me, that's why Acts 6 and 7 is so compelling. It's so... It's just so gripping. You know the story. Stephen 
is, is going to be executed. Why? Well, there, there are lots of reasons. Church was not held in a lot of favor by the majority of the Jews in Jerusalem, early part of Acts. There's this tug of war that's happening for, for, uh, for the gospel, the beginning of the book of Acts in Jerusalem. Finally ends up in this, this persecution that scatters the church. Everybody except the, the apostles you know, kind of spread out to Samaria and Judea. But in, but in the end, the, the reason that Stephen is executed is he, it's because he told the Jews that they were moral failures. That they were true sinners before God. And it made them mad. And so he says in chapter 7, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit's making the case of God to human beings. You resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the... The coming of the what? The righteous one. Where have we seen that before? Ah, that's the advocate. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. And they get pretty upset. And, and you never know when you visit Israel if you're standing in the exact place. You just know that you're closer than you've ever been before. But you read that story and then you go outside what's called Stephen's Gate or right outside Lion's Gate and you know that somewhere right outside that gate this is where Stephen was probably stoned to death. And this young man by the name of Saul holding their coats and he's saying, right on. But before he dies, Stephen sees the father with the son standing in his right hand. He's the righteous one. And what does Stephen see? He sees the righteous one, his advocate. And Stephen, in that moment, is, is losing everything that most people on earth always want. A good name. Reputation. Status. Old age. And Stephen is losing all of that. Even his life is being stripped away. But what he gets instead is, is, is just a, a, a quick glimpse of the Son standing at the right hand of God. And all of that rejection, and it seems that even the execution, because that was the treasure, because that's the thing he wanted, all of that seems to be forgotten. And what is it that he prays as he's dying? Forgive them, Father, for they, they, they don't know what they're doing. You know, to the degree that you see Jesus as your righteous one, you can take the guilt and rejection in stride. I, it's just so important, church, that, that we get this straight. That, that, that our struggle, our struggle once we have come in through faith into Christ and Christ into us, our sins washed away, our faith confessed that Jesus is Lord, the, that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross to save us from our sins. Once we have repented and our salvation has come upon us, the struggle is not whether or not to stay saved. The struggle is, are we really going to live a life that is worthy of love that we've been shown and the sacrifice that, that was manifested in that love for the rest of our life? Are we going to live in the confidence that there is no condemnation in Christ? Are we going to live with the truth of the fact that there is no one who can bring a charge against us? Not Satan and not the little voice. 
Because it's God who justifies. And it's God who has turned us into His sons and has made us an heir. And if He's not willing to withhold even His Son Christ, what else could we want? The answer, the answer, the answer, folks, is to live, to live that holy, complete joy in the fellowship that we have with the Father each and every day. And when that voice says, you know, I don't believe that God could ever love somebody like you because of the way that you think, even after you've been a believer for a number of years, you know what you do? You say, voice, shut up. It's a lie. And as believers, we don't base our our lives on a lie, but on the truth of the reconciling power of the cross of Jesus of Nazareth. And from that point on, with that kind of confidence, we approach our discipleship in a little bit of a different way. It's it's, it's not grit. It's grace. It's, it's, It's hating that sin and being more sensitive to that sin the closer that we get to God. But not in a way that drives us into the dust and we think that, you know, that... That, that, you know, God, that Jesus is up there saying, hey, just give him one more chance, one more chance. No, it's, it's, it's picking ourselves up and saying, by the Spirit of God and by the truth of His Word and by the inspiration that comes because of Jesus of Nazareth and His cross, I will move in the direction of God every single day of my life. And the people around me will see, even when the worst thing imaginable can happen to me and is happening to me. And as we talked about in the family side, it even gets worse before it gets better. What they're going to see is that they're, they're not going to see a denial or a repressed response to pain. And they're not going to see disciples of Jesus that are tearless because somehow being a disciple of Jesus has excised our tear duct. But what they're going to see is a, a holy determination that, that, that in living that discipled life, we are going to have a fellowship with God that brings about that complete joy that will never be taken from us. Never taken from us. I tell you, every time I think about this, I just want to shout hallelujah. How great God is to do what I can never do on my own. And quite frankly, I, I, want, I don't want to try. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And it's time for us really to praise God with our voices enriched by, by eyes that have seen and ears that have heard the truth, the eternal truth, words that were couched in God's heart in eternity before they ever came to us that have revolutionized the way that we think about tomorrow and the day after that. I write this to you so you don't sin, he says. But if you do sin, and you will, you have an advocate who speaks in your defense to the Father. And because of that, we rejoice. If we can share that that message with you in more particular ways leading to your salvation or pray with you or counsel you, whatever it might be. Our shepherds are going to come down here at the front and during the singing of the song, we want you to come down and talk to them. If that's what's on your heart, let's stand and sing together.